Welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. I'm Olivia, and this is Aaron, a surf who works on my farm. That's right. I'm going to be in all of these. I'm sorry. <laughs> you thought he was just for the one. No. He just won't go away. <laughs> he wants his turnips. I love every root vegetable, actually. The feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is seen to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. In this episode, we're going to be tackling a few of the most common and most infuriating myths that we have seen about the Middle Ages. So these are all going to be myths that we see in pop culture, on the internet, things that are commonly repeated and that we hate. Myth number one, brown. If I'm going to conjure a mental image of the Middle Ages, right, you, I'll, let, me, let me paint you a, a picture with words, right? I'm talking about brown dirt, brown potatoes, maybe brown yellow hay, and brownie greeny clothing, and then castles that are a bit brown and a bit green, right? That's what you see in movies, like my favorite movie, Braveheart. Unfortunately, a lot of, like, educational materials as well. Absolutely. Basically this idea that, like, there's not really any color. It's just kind of drab and miserable and everybody's... Maybe there's, like, a bit of gold. In, like, Maybe, yeah, if you're if, rich. If, you, if you're rich, you have, like... And you don't live in a shack, essentially. Yeah. You maybe have, like, a ring. Exactly. But apart from that, every single depiction of the Middle Ages, all brown. I guess it's like how the Breaking Bad Mexico filter is yellow. <laughs> <laughs> we have like the Middle Ages filter, which is just brown. And I don't know like if the Breaking Bad yellow filter is trying to convey a different material state, but I think the Middle Ages brown filter is trying to convey a sense of dirtiness mm -hmm. well, and this, grime. It's funny you should bring that up because I remember, I can't remember the film, but I remember there were production stills that went around of this movie that filmed in like this recreation of a medieval village. And they literally, like, they, they you compare, like, what it looks like if you visit and what it looks like in the in the movie. And it's like, they've, it's like they've turned the saturation, like, down 99%. It's, it's crazy. Because that's what you expect to see. But the interesting thing is that's not what you get if you look at visual sources from the Middle Ages. If you look at, like, a painting of, like, a, a city or, like, a procession of people going through... If you look at one of those paintings, it's this, like, kaleidoscopic nightmare, Alice in Wonderland of, like, red and orange and blue. Um, like, it's, it's, it's absolute chaos. It, it's not in keeping with what we think of as aesthetic. Absolutely. There's no color coordination. They, <laughs> they didn't, like, they, they were not busting out the color wheel. No, I mean, this is, you have to remember that this is the time period that gave us tights that were one different color for each leg so that you could put more colors in your outfit. You know what I would give to own one of those? They probably still make them. They probably sell them in, like, Islington charity shops. But it's not the same, is it? <laughs> no, because they're made of horrible nylon. And then you'll think, oh, I need a doublet, and then you need some long pointy shoes. Yes. Absolutely. Before you know it, you're walking down the high street everybody's checking you out because they want your sweet star. I think there's so many ways that color existed in the medieval world. So there's obviously paintings and buildings often were painted as well. The insides mm. of cathedrals were often painted. But I think that clothing is the biggest way through which this myth is propagated. I think because it ties in with this stereotype of the medieval peasant as someone who grubbed around in the dirt and who was very dirty and probably had teeth that were falling out and probably was disgusting to look at and disgusting to be around. Monty Python again. Exactly. I don't know necessarily where this myth came about. I think it's just tied into general perceptions of the medieval world as being dirty and dark and dim. I almost think it conceptually ties into the idea of the Dark Ages, which mm -hmm. is a term that's not really used. It's in, not in vogue, to in, say the yeah, least. In serious scholarly discussion. But I think that we do want this, when we think of the Middle Ages and we want to portray the Middle Ages in the mainstream, we do want to portray this image that's like dark and dull and sinister. I think mm -hmm. often because we use the Middle Ages to represent a sort of, you know, very simplistic, almost like 
primordial or primeval time in human history. It's what some people might call Whiggish history, that we've arrived at the current moment, which is the best thing that could possibly exist, from like this gradual sort of ascendancy. And that's what I think the, the Middle Ages tends to get sort of slotted into a bit too conveniently. It goes like early Middle Ages slash Dark Ages, high Middle Ages, and then the Renaissance happens and all the fun stuff starts, basically. And then we arrive at, um, I don't know, we, we arrive at the Industrial Revolution. I mean, everybody has typewriters and, and wears suits and so on. And we talked about this a bit in the previous episode, that we don't really think that people, especially common people during that time, had like a rich intellectual life or a rich mm -hmm. inner life. And that they were capable of wanting or appreciating nice things. And mm. so I think we like to have this image of the average medieval person as having a very small world, both physically and maybe like emotionally as well. Mm. And I think that ties into the idea that these people didn't wear nice clothing, that they were yeah. dirty all the time. And I think that, you know, there's certain points that you can make. So for instance, certain clothing dyes were expensive. So it's not like someone, you know, fucking... Uh, I don't know what's a medieval name. It's not like Peter working. <laughs> Peter, one of those exclusively medieval <laughs> names, like Peter yeah. or John. <laughs> guy, no. guy, guy. That's the best. Guy, name. yes, weird medieval guy. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like Guy farming his you know rhubarb or whatever would be strutting about wearing like yeah. a fur cape and you know bright reds and blues in fact a lot of these people were wearing clothing made out of undyed wool which probably would have been white mm -hmm. or gray well yeah because the wool industry is is absolutely huge but i think that um it was such a good time to be like in in sheeps you know oh like my to God. be into like sheep well that was the only industry that existed in like england for hundreds upon hundreds of years complete the isle like the British Isles, we think about it very much as sort of this sort of center of medieval life because of like King Arthur. Is basically where just where wool comes from. Yeah. And it just goes to Flanders. Yeah, we don't even know how to like make the wool into nice fabric. We just know like sheep. It's it's literally the economic periphery. Like <laughs> it's 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 a miserable existence. It's the it's the bottom of the um, food chain essentially. But what. Like, it's, it's interesting that you say that, yeah, yeah, it's expensive to dye things, but at the same time, it's possible to sort of overstate how exclusive this stuff was, because we know the dyeing industry was massive. For example, in, in, in Florence, you know, the, the Dyers Guild was this very powerful organization, along with, like, the, the tanners and the masons. The vintners. And, exactly. All the, the all the All the different kind of jobs that you could have. If you need to, like, now. think of a medieval job, just imagine the name of, like, the most obnoxious American boy you met. <laughs> Tanner. Cooper. Hunter. Hunter. <laughs> farmer. <laughs> butcher. <laughs> butcher. <laughs> have you met anyone called Butcher? I like that you didn't question farmer. Farmer is like, I can imagine somebody being called yeah, farmer. Yeah, you know, little farmer. But because it's an American, it's like farmer is spelled F-A-H-U-R-N-H-H-N-E-R. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's not just clothing that people are sort of wanting to sort of tar up a little bit. Like, you know, there's there was a there's been a great sort of um, increase in awareness of in the last few years of how classical statues were sort of painted in these lovely, gaudy, awful colors. But the same is true of a lot of um, a lot of medieval sculptures. Like I went to Lubeck a few months ago. They have some great sort of museums of like medieval stuff, and there's a lot of statues painted in these lovely sort of colors that. Tells you about sort of what the medieval world is like to look at. And if you look, by the way, at a lot of medieval paintings, the castles are not grey. You know, we have, the, we have this image from what's left of castles as being these big sort of grey imposing things. But actually, in a lot of cases, they were um, painted in, in this fantastic like lime wash that would be like salmon pink or gold Amazing. or just like... The kind of stuff that you can see from space, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> like Disney-like castles. So it's this vibrant world. It's And in fact, to our sensibilities, it would actually be quite 
I think quite off-putting. Oh, yeah. Because they're not really thinking about, like, color court. You know those videos that are on, like, Instagram or TikTok and, like, oh, I'm going to pick out my outfit and there'll be, like, horizontal stripes. Oh, like, my God. Like, if pairings. a medieval person made one of those videos, you, people would have <laughs> hemorrhages. You'd have... <laughs> They'd be like, okay, so my left leg's going to be yellow, right leg's going to be green. <laughs> Because they don't have, they're not thinking about color and aesthetics the way that we are. They have different associations with colors as mm-hmm. well. So right now we associate white as being like a pure and religious color. And you often see white in religious contexts. And even though white did have a few of those associations in the Middle Ages, colors were also really important to religion. And it was thought that bright, really bold, brilliant colors were almost a representation of like divine glory and divine spirit. And so, yeah, if you look at like drawings of angels in medieval manuscripts, you get ones where their wings look like they're made out of peacock feathers and just these beautiful, like iridescent, really gorgeous pigmentations um, that are just absolutely amazing to look at. It's sort of like, to use an example for Greek and Roman philosophy as a comparison, it's sort of like the Plato's cave kind of idea. Like there's the fake world of representation and then there's the, the real thing and you want the real thing you want the real color yeah exactly you want, to get, you want the bluest blue you've ever seen yeah and i think something that's really interesting about that as well is paint so paint that would have gone on either manuscripts or statues or buildings it was actually much less restricted in the color palette that you could offer than dyes because dyes they need to be light fast they can't wash out They need to hold well in the fabric. And so Mm. often you did see that certain dyes like Murex, which was that sort of famous, really rich, like royal blue or red dye that you get from snails, was was (laughs) the snail dye. So, yeah, the the medieval color of royalty was snail. Um, And you've probably seen a snail before. They're not that big. So, like, in order to get... You need a lot of snails. Yeah, you need a lot of snails. You need to get, line them all up and get a steamroller. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But if you're making paint, you're much less restricted. So that's why a lot of those blues are, like, lapis lazuli and minerals Mm. that also weren't necessarily cheap, but Mm. easier to come by. So let's say that I I'm get my eyes are getting sick of looking at guys' fantastic pants. I want to go do something else. I want to read a book. Can I do that? Well, that depends. And that brings us very nicely into our next myth that we'd like to discuss, which is literacy. Yes. So the myth that we're tackling here is that people in the Middle Ages were largely illiterate. And by illiterate, we mean can't write your own name. So proving or disproving literacy is very difficult because Mm -hmm. even though there were, for instance, censuses in the Middle Ages, which did, in fact, sometimes record data on whether someone could read or write, often this data is very incomplete and it also promotes this binary view of literacy where someone is either literate or illiterate just because someone might not be able to write a poem Mm -hmm. or write or read a complex Latin text. Oh, this is also important. In the Middle Ages, reading and writing was often synonymous with reading and writing Latin. Or, for mm. instance, if you were a court clerk in a, you know medieval England, it would maybe involve reading and writing Anglo-French. But of course, most people, their first language, in fact, very, 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 very few people, their first language would have been, um, would have been Latin. And eat like, even very, very few people, their first language would have been French. Yeah, exactly. For the most part, you are speaking some kind of, in your day-to-day life, you're speaking, you know, some kind of English or German or, I don't know, um, Castilian. I'm, we're not doing the thing of naming all the languages No, we're again. not. But, but exactly. <laughs> Vernacular languages, basically. Vernacular languages, which is kind of the word that's used to describe the languages that the common people speak in, if you're not familiar with that term. And there's an extra wrinkle to this, which is that when we say languages, it's really important to note that these vernacular languages, certainly at the start of the Middle Ages, are not consolidated or like, there ain't a dictionary. Yeah. Right? It's, there is, there are a 
constellation of dialects that sort of shift endlessly as you go from one end of Europe to the other in a almost kind of continuous way because, you know, nobody has sat down and said, we want to everybody to speak French and we we need to decide what French means. Yeah. Like, what are the French words? That's a process that really starts um, in most of Europe in the sort of late uh, 18th, early 19th century, where these, I, I hesitate to use the word, but essentially peasant languages, languages of the people, sort of scholarly interest starts to, in, in sort of, among sort of nationalist academics, basically, starts to um, take an interest in these languages and, and, their, and their sort of culture and starts to sort of sit down and try and come up with something coherent. So there's the extra wrinkle of like, what do we even mean when we say you can write this language? Yeah, because there was very little standardization. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in English, we have the word elephant. Yeah. In Middle English, it was not quite so simple. So the most common form was oliphant. We also have holophant, olfant, olivant, olifontus, olifons, oliwants, and that's just... <laughs> The versions that are in my Middle English dictionary that I'm looking at. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a wonderful... I, middle English is so much more whimsical. I know. We lost that sense of whimsy. We just gave it to the Dutch. So, we don't have a standardized definition of literacy mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages. In fact, we don't necessarily have one now. We do have ideas of the numbers of people who are able to read and write competently in Latin, for instance, but we don't always have numbers of people who are able to write and read vernacular languages. We also don't really have an idea of how many people possess different levels of literacy. So a really big one is that in places with lower literacy rates, you have a lot of people who can read, but not necessarily write. Another thing that's brought up often in conjunction with the Middle Ages is that the types of reading and writing that common people would have done wouldn't necessarily have been preserved. Mm. So we have all of these Latin prayer books, and we have, for instance, court rolls from medieval England that are in Anglo-French, but we don't really have any reason to believe that if people who are, for instance, agricultural workers were writing in English, that that necessarily would have been preserved. It's like in a hundred years, right? They're probably going to still be reading, I don't know, what's an important book from now? Uh, Atlas Shrugged. Please. <laughs> uh, Ready Player One. Please. <laughs> a serious one now. Um, Animal Farm. Animal Farm. They're probably still going to be reading Animal Farm, right? That's going to be preserved. My tweets about, like, can't wait to eat this bacon sandwich oh, are yeah. not going to get preserved. So I think because we don't have hard evidence of people who were, for instance, laborers or who were more of the middle class reading and writing, the question that comes up often then is, why would they have been reading and writing? How do we prove mm. that, that it's possible that they would have had a reason to read and write? Because you live on a farm, your life isn't necessarily, you know, necessarily intellectually rich all of the time. Well, a, I'm going to push book, back on that a little bit, because farming costs, requires quite a lot of logistics and planning absolutely you need to be able to keep records of stuff that's a great point like it's an actual this is the the enterprise that sustains your family you need to take it quite seriously and you can't rely on remembering everything absolutely because once you have all of your turnips harvested you're taking them to or market, potatoes or potatoes or ye old potatoes or ye old eat tomatoes <laughs> exactly um then yeah you're taking them to market you're buying more seeds you might have taxes to pay or whatever. You might have tithes for your church. And so you're probably keeping records of these things. And even then, I think if you're not looking at necessarily a practical application, something that's come up in a really interesting podcast that's done by Medievalist.net that I was listening to a while back was the fact that a lot of children, when they were very young, were in what we think of now as toddlers, but was just being a child in the Middle Ages when they weren't necessarily old enough to help around the house, so, you know, children under the age of five, for instance, there would have been a lot of time that they, were, that they spent with their parents, in particular with their mother, mm -hmm. and that was a really important time in that child's education. In fact, for a lot of lower-class children, it was the only education that they saw, mm -hmm. was learning prayers and learning about the world from their mothers. 
while they were very young. And so even though we can't necessarily prove that people were teaching each other to read and write as well at this point in time, there were opportunities for people to pass on this knowledge to each other. And just because books, as we think of them in the Middle Ages, were expensive, doesn't mean that there weren't other ways that you could read and write. I mean, a lot of kids are scratching things into the dirt from a young age. Mm. You also have like wax tablets in the Middle Ages that are made for you to write in and then like erase. Yeah. And we've kind of smashed headfirst into one of the great problems of history. It's really sort of paleontology. Like you find some dinosaur bones and you kind of have to make it fit. But at a certain point, you kind of have to imagine what it would have been like. And, you know, the life of an ordinary person 400, 500, 600, 700 years ago is not going to leave a whole lot behind. And we kind of can't definitively answer whether or not every person or even the majority of people in Europe had any level of literacy for sure. But we don't have enough evidence to really support this assumption that they didn't. And this is one of those cases where, yeah, we, we just won't be able to definitively say because we don't have reliable data. Even if we did the sort of the material culture left behind can't tell us either way. And I think it's always risky bringing up sort of hard figures because then you run the risk of people mistaking an estimate for outright fact. But just to That's give... so hard enough now in the <laughs> 21st century. Yes. God forbid, um, you know, in the, in the 13th. Just to give some idea, estimates of literacy rates in, for instance, medieval England vary by historian, but they vary from around 10% to as much as 50% of people having a basic grasp of English in the written form. Which, even if it's 10%, is actually quite a few people. Yeah. And is a lot bigger than the number of people who were in the clergy. Yeah, exactly. Myth busted. Busted makes me feel good. Oh dear. <laughs> so where do you think this kind of where do we get this from? Is it just the lack of definitive evidence one way or the other? Or is there sort of a... Or, or is this a sort of motivated statement when people are making this assumption? I think like a lot of medieval myths, it just is one of the many tentacles of this apparatus of mythology that promotes a view of ignorance and a view mm. of intellectual closed-mindedness in the Middle Ages. I think it ties in with the idea that people were quite uneducated, which then lends itself really well to the idea that then, magically, sometime around the year 1500, <laughs> people suddenly became educated again and they became interested in the classical worlds, which they apparently weren't in the Middle Ages. Which Just the use of the lie. word again yeah. made my like neck muscle twitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, no. <laughs> but we'll get into that. Yeah, so for instance, like even today, people think that those who lived in the Middle Ages thought that the Earth was flat, which is oh, not God. true. And also Eratosthenes calculated the circumference of the Earth to incredible with incredible accuracy in, like, I don't even know when, like, 2000 BC, using a stick? Like... It's actually... can be figured out. Universal laws can be derived. Yeah, exactly. Um, and with, I think over the end of the Middle Ages and the early modern period, the beginning of the early modern period, you saw a gradual secularization of the sciences that led people to start trying a little bit more consciously to separate out religion from science. It wasn't really successful or complete because even up to, you know, the, like, you know, turn of the of the twentieth century, science was still often very deeply interlinked with religion. Charles Darwin, when he was mm. writing about evolution, you know, was writing about God creating this process of evolution. Yeah. So we can't necessarily separate them out, but the way that people immediately in the aftermath of the Middle Ages saw themselves was as the people who were reviving intellectualism and scholarship. And that mindset really has not quite been thrown for the past 500 years.
I think it's really important to sort of note, though, that not every myth about the Middle Ages is about it being worse than the contemporary present. A great example of that, I think, is the idea of the chivalric code. We have this sort of image of knights in particular being these these very noble warriors who followed a very strict uh, moral code called the chivalric code, which dictated um, the way that they fought in war. They had to be honorable in battle. They had to be pious, devoted to Jesus, and they had to respect women. Unfortunately, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna ventriloquize the American medievalist Sidney Painter, who looked at the sort of history of the Middle Ages to try and divine whether people actually followed the chivalric code, and he says, "I can find no evidence that there ever was a period when these rules were followed. It was not a thing, except, of course, it was." A thing that the people thought about. People were conscious of these morals, and a lot of these motifs appear in art mm -hmm. and writing. And I think the fact that people were so fixated on portraying these dudes is like proof that they didn't exist. Like <laughs> it's like Godzilla or Bigfoot. Like he thinks the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> What's really interesting in the Middle Ages is that you have these romance stories that mm. are about what's known as courtly love, which mm. is the love between a knight and a lady, and is this very ritualized, very idealized form of love that is fairly close to, I would say, what we think of as medieval chivalry and medieval love. But this was also, even in the Middle Ages, a highly idealized form of love, and also a lot of these stories reflect the baser desires, perhaps you could say, of their male authors, mm. So a really big one, The Romance of the Rose, has this sort of grandiose setup of a lover who has to talk to all of these. Um, this is a, a from France, written by multiple people over the course of a few centuries, beginning in the 12th or the 13th century. And it has this setup of this guy who's a lover, who has a dream, where he has to negotiate with all of these allegorical figures like jealousy and friendship and hatred in order to get to his love who's the rose. The rose is the allegory for the object of his desires, which the climax, sort so of, to speak. <laughs> actually, literally, of this story is of this guy plucking the rose. And yeah. it's disgusting to read. Um, in fact, should I read some of it? Do you have to? <laughs> I think I have to. Oh, um, here's a verse from the end, oh, God. told from the perspective of the lover, who says, Though I had to, in due course, scrape the bark with a little force, Ooh. since no other means did I know to win that which I longed for so. And in the end I had, indeed, over the bud, spread a little seed. Oh! I feel disgusting just saying that. Oh, God. And this is good. This is, like, idealized. This is the idealized version. This is the, like, this is the one that you want to aspire to. Yeah, which it's worth saying that even in the Middle Ages, for a variety of reasons, there were people who hated this poem and wanted it to be burned. <laughs> and part of those were sort of, you know, religious purists who were like, no sex in poems. Some of those people were actually offended by its treatment of women. So, mm -hmm. for instance, the seminal proto-feminist, not feminist, but proto-feminist scholar Christine de Pizan. This was a woman who lived in France in the 15th century. Something that's really interesting in her work is that she talks about how this poem is disgusting, but also about how she mourns the fact that chivalry no longer exists. So she says, yes. Back in days gone by, men knew how to treat women, and people went to church on time and didn't just go to pick up ladies, mm -hmm. and so on. And sadly, that's all gone away now. It sounds like somebody bitching on Twitter about the 1950s. Basically, being gone, yeah. Essentially. And this is, the, this is the problem, is that people are always referencing the, the lost chivalric age in medieval texts. But the problem is that the, you keep reaching further and further back to try and find it, and it never materializes. Yeah. There is a tremendous amount of nostalgia that is, I think, very recognizable to people today of of in, of the rose-tinted sort of spectacles being applied applied to the past. Absolutely. And it's funny that it's such a, a common theme, even in the Middle Ages, this nostalgia, that you get it in so many different sources. So even, like, in, in medical texts, you'll have mm. the people who writing who wrote them 
saying, you know, no one practices good medicine anymore. It's unfortunate. And in um, uh, the hunting book, um, a hunting text by the French hunter Gaston Phoebus, I probably pronounced that really badly. He writes like, no one knows how to train their dogs anymore. <laughs> you go out on a hunt and there's all these guys with these greyhounds that won't fucking behave. You these know? darn kids. <laughs> exactly. They don't go outside and play with the hose. Yeah, no, exactly. He's Play like, with a stick and a hoop. Kids, kids these days are only interested in drinking, not training their pack of hunting dogs. And another thing to note, I think, is that when we say, like, the sh- looking at the chivalric code and the chivalric ideal more um, more generally, it's also a very, very nebulous thing. People are always defining it and redefining it. Geoffrey Chaucer has one. Like, he has his own his own complete definition of, of chivalry that is completely different from what I, like, described earlier, where he's like, yeah, no, chivalry, it's about being honest in business, working hard, and loving Jesus. Yeah. That's like two, that's like one out of three lining up. It's a very, yeah, it's a very recognizable sort of worldview. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. But anyway, the, the point being that, like, people are not fixed to one idea of what chivalry is. It's just kind of this just idea that's floating in the ether. It's usually the polar opposite of whatever you, whatever issue you have with your present society. Yeah. Christine de Pizan lived through this really unstable time in the French monarchy where she saw um, the monarch who had basically hired her get deposed. And so her definition of chivalry, really important, gotta love France. <laughs> The question that if, if chivalry as we sort of think of it now didn't exist as a sort of practical worldview in the Middle Ages, where does this idea come from? And I think that you can trace it in the main to 18th century, 19th century England, essentially, um, or I should say Britain at that point, specifically to this guy called Richard Hurd, who's this Bishop of Worcester, who is always bitching about how the age of chivalry is over and people aren't nice anymore. So people are still going on about this. So they're complaining about this thing being gone, and at the same time they're sort of defining it into existence. Yeah. By sort of saying, chivalry was this thing, and it's and it's gone now, and it's, isn't that terrible, this is the modern world, blah 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 blah. It's, it's along with this general sort of rise of nostalgia that starts to happen in the sort of the 18th or 19th centuries, for a sort of imagined past. And one of the interesting reasons that I've sort of read about for why that happened at that particular period of time is that in England, in that period, people are kind of casting around for ideological reasons to explain England's political situation. That that you have this, technically, yes, it's technically a monarchy, but it's really kind of run by all these nobles and as the English political system is to this day it's a very sort of informal system of agreement and consensus and uh, unwritten rule that constrain a monarch that technically isn't constrained and they're ask and they're asking themselves how did this come about and ideologues in this period start saying well it's because we have this history of chivalry the elites of our country have always bought into being noble and reasonable and The noblesse honest. oblige. The noblesse oblige, exactly. Recently I saw a tweet saying, we don't have noblesse oblige anymore, we need to bring it back. <laughs> which I thought was one of the most, like, nauseating things I've ever read. <laughs> we need a more generous aristocracy. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't hurt. I think you could argue that this almost culminated in the late, 19th century and the industrial mm. revolution yeah. because there was nothing that made people want to go back more than having this rapidly expanding world of the steam engine and Absolutely. like monopoly man oil barons and Victorian workhouses where children are being put into a big meat grinder every day mm. and things like that and that's the Victorians loved the middle ages and I think part of this was because their world was growing so quickly away from the mm-hmm. past and a lot of people were quite scared by that. And even people who were not necessarily like aristocrats. So people like William Morris, for instance, who spearheaded the whole arts and crafts movement, he saw the Middle Ages as actually being more democratic 
than the time period that he was living in, the end of the 19th century, which is a little bit iffy. It's dubious. It's dubious. (laughs) (laughs) But because he was a hand worker and he wanted to promote handwork rather than things that were made by machines, Mm. he also incorporated all of these different medieval motifs like King Arthur and Lancelot into his works. And for him, it was this antithesis to the time he was living in. It's a pattern that you see pretty consistently in Europe and in the rest of the world when parts of Africa and, and Asia are going through the same process of industrialization. There's there's the, the, the general rise of this nostalgia for a world that didn't necessarily even exist. And that's not the only kind of nostalgia that starts to happen in that period. Because the, ri- the, the emergence of, of the industrial economy and, and of imperialism and of all the sort of stuff that we recognize now, it also coincides with another um, form, of, form of nostalgia and another idea about the Middle Ages that I think it's really, really important to push back against. And I think that anybody who has a, any kind of platform when talking about history has a bit of a responsibility to, to criticize, which is this idea that the Middle Ages, like medieval societies were homogenous. First of all, that everybody in medieval Europe was white. Second of all, that everybody sort of lived in these very homogenous communities um, where everybody you know, speaks the same language. None of that is even remotely true. All of that, is an invention of first the 19th and then the 20th centuries. Let's go back to my favorite city. Let's talk about Constantinople for a second. Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire throughout most of the Middle Ages, and then the Ottoman Empire from 1453 onwards. Constantinople is, yes, it's the capital of the Greek Orthodox world. It's this city where Christianity is indelibly, like, baked into the stones, essentially. It's, it's the city of Hagia Sophia. It's a phenomenally sort of Christianized place. Also very much the capital of the Greek world at this stage. So it's a Greek city and a, and a Christian city, but it's also full of other people as well. You have this massive melting pot of people from, from Europe and Africa and Asia. You have Greeks and you have Armenians. You have Arabs, Slavs, Goths. There are Vikings. My favorite little tidbit about that is you can find like little bits of Viking graffiti yeah. in 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 Istanbul to this day because they that's Ragnar that, was here. Yeah, I mean they they went all the way down basically Eastern Europe to get to Constantinople because it was the place that everybody wanted to go to. It was the center of trade and ideas, and that meant that people from all over the world came. And you would hear all sorts of different languages on the street. People who did not like people did not look all look the same. It was this. It, it was, you know, in many ways, a kind of recognizably cosmopolitan place. Okay, you might say, Constantinople, that's an edge case. It's a transcontinental city on the edge of Europe. Of course, it's going to be this sort of nexus point. Yeah, surely the rest of Europe was homogenous. Bullshit. <laughs> so, there's a, so there's a great study that came out a couple of years ago, I think 2019, um, that basically exhumed a bunch of corpses of people who died during the Black Death in London in one cemetery, and they had 41 corpses. They did like DNA sequencing, and they looked at bone structure and so on. They did all sorts of different tests to try and guess where these people came from. And what they found is that yes, okay, most people had sort of DNA and features that were sort of consistent with, you know, Northern Europeans at the time, but there were people who were almost certainly of African descent. There were people who were quite plausibly um, either from or descended from people who'd come from Asia. And as we've talked about, London is not the center of the world at this stage. London is a, it's, it's a trading hub, it's the center of, of, of the wool trade with Flanders, but it's not... It's one of like the eel fishing capitals of the world. Yeah, it's they not... They consume more eels than like per capita. <laughs> well, so it's other than being the Guinness Book World Record holders of most eels eaten per year, London is not the most distinctive place. It's, it's not what it would later become. 
as this sort of massive metropolis. And even there you have people who are coming from all over the world and settling here. And of course, the reason why people are coming to places like Constantinople and places like London is because of the same reasons that anybody moves throughout history, because there's trade and there's money and there's there's family connections. People move around and people are coming, yes, from from different parts of Europe. You have like big Dutch and Flemish communities living in living in, in England and Scotland at this time, for sure but from much further afield as well. There, there's this tendency to think about the Mediterranean in history as the thing that separates Europe from Africa. It's kind of this wall of sea that distinguishes the white Christian North from the African world. But in fact, when you really think about how trade works in the, in the pre-modern world, in the time before railways, right, the easiest way to transport anything is by sea. And so the trading hubs that emerge, by and large, are either um, on the sea, or very well connected to the sea, like Constantinople or London, or they are along vast rivers like the Danube. And so in places where there are there is a lot of trade, you do inevitably see a lot of people living together who are not necessarily speaking the same language or, um, or, or look the same. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it was this wonderful sort of kumbaya, pre-racist society. Well, yeah, we've, we've talked a bit about like the, you know, medieval sort of fear and fixation on mm-hmm. things that were foreign and things that were different. So, yeah, it's not to say that everyone was always living together in yeah. perfect harmony, but they were living together, right? Yeah, and like you had this, and, and it's really important to note as well, that the racial categories that we have now did not exist in the, in the Middle Ages. Like, these are things that were invented in the modern period. Now, that's not to say that groups weren't racialized, and I think that the, the experiences of Jewish communities across Europe in this period is a really tragic example of that. It's not an en- enormously tolerant society, but it's a very, very diverse society. Yeah, and even in, in some ways you could say that the kind of separation of communities like Jewish communities is part of how we know that there was diversity. Because, for instance, post-Norman invasion in England, we have different rules about different laws that apply to, for instance, Normans who are the new ruling class as opposed Mm -hmm. to Anglo-Saxons. So if you murder a Norman and you're an Anglo-Saxon, instant death. Murder a Norman because you're and you're a Norman, you know, jail. Murder an Anglo-Saxon and you're a Norman, like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. We can learn a little something about medieval political thought as well, because the idea that people who speak a certain language should live in a state, should all live in a state together, um, is very much something that you come that you come to in the um, modern period. So in the in the nineteenth century, you have the emergence of you have the real emergence of nationalism as an ideology that says that like you know we are the Hungarians. And we should be independent of um, of of the of the Habsburg Empire because we, because we are we are Hungarians and we deserve to rule ourselves. That's not to say that people weren't didn't have any ideas about nations in the Middle Ages. So, for example, um, to take you know the relationship between the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Roman Empire. You have these two empires that are both claimed to be the Roman Empire essentially. And they couldn't ever refer to each other as the Roman Empire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you have the, the Byzantines are like, ah, yes, the emperor of the Germans. Yeah. And the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor is like, ah, yes, the emperor of the Greeks. But of course, the Byzantine emperor doesn't just rule Greeks. And the Holy Roman Empire, do, Emperor doesn't just rule Germans. Yeah. These are big polities that are tremendously, tremendously diverse. And one of the reasons why I think we get stuck on this stuff is because... We are not living in that world anymore. And what I mean by that is, in a very literal sense, in the 20th century, there was this... I don't know if you can call it a consensus. I think I would call it a consensus amongst political elites that different ethnic groups living together in the same state was destabilizing politically. The experience of the Balkan Wars first in the, in the um, pre-World War I year. And then, of course, what kicks off World War I, which is Serbian nationalists in the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it convinces um, 
it convinces a lot of European statesmen that basically what you need to have peace is to have everybody live in their stupid little borders with all the people that are like them. And so you get enormous displacements of people, massive movements from the, from the, from basically from 1923 onwards. It's, it all really kicks off after the Greco-Turkish War when the, it's called a population exchange. It was ethnic cleansing uh, on both sides. Um, essentially, the Greek government agrees to take all of the Greeks from uh, Anatolia and the new Turkish government agrees to take all of the Muslims from Greece. And it happens over and over again. You know, there's a, hundreds and hundreds of examples of the people who don't fit this new world getting swept away under the rug. I think that um, something that comes up a lot in um, sort of medieval historiography, historiography being the study of history mm -hmm. as, you know, of the history of history, um, is the, and this isn't, um, this isn't exclusive to the Middle Ages, but is the idea of using the past to legitimize the present. Mm -hmm. So this is why a lot of medieval books start with things like, uh, you know, this is a preface by the author and it's saying, I was walking through the darkest, most forgotten uh, aisles of the or corridors of the library when I came upon this ancient book that was written in Latin by a classical author, and I knew it contained great wisdom, so I translated mm -hmm. it for you guys. This is like a conceit. It's a farce. And people knew that it wasn't true, that this was just a preface the author had invented. Um, but the idea was that something being old or something, you know, having historical precedent made it legitimate. And I think to kind of talk about why this myth is so prevalent... I think we have to talk about the fact that, like many other myths, it's being used to legitimize present-day concerns and present-day yeah. beliefs that only a certain type of person belongs within the borders of a nation. Absolutely. There's a, there's a really good, the, the, probably the definitive book about nationalism, it, in my opinion, is Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities that makes essentially this point that, like, a nation is is bound together by ideas about the past and about its own antiquity. And it's very, very, very seductive to, um, to think about the, the, the political communities that we live in now as being these sort of unchanging things that sort of have, have these ancient, ancient um, antecedents. And of course, you know, many of, these, many of these political units, these countries are quite old but they didn't exist in the form that we think of them as. It's like French people didn't just speak French. They spoke Breton or Occitan or Catalan or Basque or like the image that we all have of these nations being these sort of primordial things that were forged in the Middle Ages. Unfortunately, I have to say that like as a Scottish person, you see a huge amount of that in, in the sort of way that we think about Scotland. We draw so much of it from, of our ideas about Scotland from the, from the medieval period and from Scottish Wars of Independence, for example, and and the image that we have of Scotland in this period is not accurate. Scotland in that period is a is a multilingual, religiously complicated they didn't society. Have haggis they yet, didn't have haggis or whiskey. Yet, or whiskey. Well, I think what's what's really important is that even if a nation in name has existed for a long period of time, what's really harmful is this idea of like the a nation having a unique, indelible, unchanging spirit mm, that can only nice. be carried and transmitted by the hearts of people who are, like, ethnically from there, which is yeah. also stupid because, as we've just discussed, people were moving around and migrating a lot. And I think the need to legit use the past to legitimize the present is so important because definitions of, like, race and how we perceive ethnicity change so much, mm -hmm. you know? The history of every nation and every land is one of change. I'll tell you what it is. It's a, it's a sedimentary process where these these waves of change sort of sort of build upon each other and create something something emergent that is the modern world and and the modern sort of identities that we have. Whether the myths that we 
have been talking about are sort of positive or negative myths, so to speak. Or both. Or both. I think there's an overarching point, maybe, that you can make about people tending to idealize or simplify the past or paint a very simplistic picture of the past. We want to put it in a box and exactly. say, this was this, and now we're something else. For our final myth, we're going to tackle a very notorious one on the internet. Oh, this is a good one. That you might have seen. If you search for anything, anything medieval peasant, you get this fucking thing, which is, did you know that medieval peasant worked less than you? It's this one specific meme, which I'll, I'll link it in the description, but I'm also going to describe it, is it's this drawing of this like little pastoral farm scene. And the text says, medieval peasants worked only about 150 days in a year. Mm. The church believed it was important to keep them happy with frequent mandatory holidays. You have less holidays than a medieval peasant. I want to find this person and, and, and put them in a TARDIS. It's like and the, then just drop them in the middle of 14th century Perthshire and just see how they get on. The smug, like, sanctimonious tone of voice. Yeah. Like, hey, asshole, didn't you know? Your life is worse than a medieval peasant. So where do we start with that? The most immediate thing that irks me with this is the idea that the church was giving them holidays to keep them happy because it sets up the church as being, like, the medieval people's boss. Like, you go in... You clock in, you report to your boss, who is the church. And also that they're, that they're, the church is insincere in its religious observation, that it's a calculated thing, which, I mean, I don't think we have time to get into that, but seems at the very least to be not completely true. I think we have to define how much holiday, like, we have these days yeah. in order to fully tackle this. So you have weekends probably love those at an absolute minimum so you get about 100 days of those in a year that means that you're looking at about 250 days of work in a year mm. maximum probably so the idea is i guess that medieval peasants worked about 100 fewer days than you but actually if you look at basically any medieval calendar you did have a lot of festival days you didn't have a weekend in the traditional sense so you wouldn't work sunday if you were say a farm laborer so you do have Things like Christmas and Easter and All Saints Day and other feast days. That's about 100 days a year. But I think that maybe the bigger issue is that this claim paints like an incorrect idea of what labor was. Yeah, I think we're kind of a little bit giving them too much credit by quibbling over like the number of days. Yeah. I think we need to, as you say, take a step back and just think for a second about what work is. You go to work today for most people who live in a industrialized western country you go to work you clock in you i don't know you make coffees or you look at excel or you answer your emails or you answer your emails or whatever and then you go home and oh god the work yeah You're right that is what we all do and sometimes you go and you record a podcast with your friends but mostly it's not that we have an assumption in our society that the stuff you do at home is not work. That is not a distinction that would have necessarily occurred to people who lived in the Middle Ages. You yeah. weren't, for most people, most people weren't wage laborers who were paid a wage. You lived on a farm and you farmed potatoes, jokes, not potatoes, <laughs> you farmed turnips or whatever. Um, carrots. Carrots. Onions. And then you have to eat that. You have to fix your own clothes. You have to do so many things. There ain't no universal child care. There's no universal education. You're having to be self-sufficient in ways that we don't, we mostly aren't as middle-class people living in wealthy countries. And that's work. Yeah. Because, like, doing chores is hard. I feel like a victim every time I have to wash the dishes or whatever. Yeah, I can tell. But I think that... <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I'm forcing Aaron to record this in my, like, grotty, disgusting flat <laughs> where all the windows are closed um, in a heat wave. But if you're a medieval person, like, you have to make your own soap, you yeah. have to make your own clothes, you have to walk down to the river or the well for water, you don't have a tap, you have to do the same thing whenever you wash your clothes. You don't have conveniences, I would say. Yeah. And you're also 
in large part not working for money. So as mm-hmm. you said, unlike today where we're basically working to get paid to buy things that we need, these people are actually producing material yeah. goods. It's a subsistence economy for a lot of people. You mostly produce the stuff that you need yourself and you might go to the market and, and buy something. Like a plow or something. Exactly. Probably hard to make. Yeah, like stuff that's harder to make, but like the, a lot of the raw materials are going to have to come from you and that's hard that's hard and i think importantly like you're working for your own subsistence and also possibly to pay taxes so the idea that the church is giving you holidays as in the church knows when you are or aren't working all of the time is a bit goofy in that regard because actually knowing that if you don't work enough you're going to die is for most people pretty good motivation pretty good motivation and in addition when you have a holiday, you still need to, like, milk the cows and do things that are time-sensitive. Darn your shitty kids' clothes. Yeah, like, darn your shitty kids' clothes, shovel shit out of, like, the chicken coops and, like, and you're the probably pig l- missing a couple of fingers because <laughs> it came off with, like, a threshing machine. <laughs> like, manual labor and manual farm labor is really, 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 really hard. Also, on these festival days... They're church festivals. What do you have to do? Go to church. Yeah. So, great, you have a holiday. You wake up bright and early, bathe yourself and your whole family, get dressed, go to church for a few hours, but you might be walking, like, hours to get to church. Probably are. It's the main form of transport. Exactly. And then you have some celebrations afterwards, possibly. You might have walked into a village and they've got, like, a puppet show or jesters. Or dancers, or like a play. I love all those things. Yeah, and like, this is like, this is a holiday. When you think about your holidays, you're probably not thinking, oh, I'd love to go to church, watch some jugglers, and eat a pie. (laughs) I speak for yourself. That actually sounds like a pretty good day today. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. So you don't, you also don't have this modern idea of vacation as something where you can do whatever you want. Leisure time. Leisure time, exactly. So you have celebrations, but you don't have this idea of downtime necessarily in the same sense. Not least because your kids and your animals aren't going to take a day off of having needs. Yeah, exactly. You are you are interdependent with the land in a way that we have the luxury of not as podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> have the luxury of not having to be. And I think this is a really useful sort of thing to juxtapose with where we started this podcast at and thinking about like the nice stuff about medieval life and the truth is it's not people living in a pile of dung but it's also not people just kicking it it's hard work it's poverty but it's a it's a life that has fine things and happiness and complication and um and thoughts of your own and culture of your own and and all this stuff is true at the same time. It's not a world that we necessarily need to feel nostalgic for, but it's also not a life that was grindingly awful and not worthwhile. So I think what we've been getting at with a lot of these myths that we've been talking about is that there's often a modern interest in perpetuating these myths. Mm -hmm. If we ask where this specific myth came from, we can actually tie this one to one very specific voice. So (gasps) Get his ass. We're quite lucky. Get her ass, (gasps) in fact. (laughs) Oh my god. This is a 1991 book called The Overworked American, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure. Goddamn America. By American sociologist Juliette Shore. And so already, right out the gate, we've got clearly a little bit of an agenda in this book. Oh, which you is think? <laughs> trying to draw out some narrative about Americans being overworked, which is certainly true. But we clearly yeah, have... Yeah, a hundred holidays a year, they do not have the poor people. <laughs> <laughs> but we clearly also have a little bit of, you know, this attempt to use the past to legitimize the present. So this sociologist in attempting to say that people are overworked and should work less has gone back to the past and said well medieval people worked less she basically goes through history and looks at how much various people were working or at least she tries to so she actually does cite sources for these specific claims about how much medieval people worked so she cites two scholars nora kenyon and richard clark who both wrote papers about this and 
these numbers that, that she throws around are both mentioned in the papers that she cites, but she's actually taken them more or less completely out of context. And both of the scholars that she cites in referencing these papers have said, well, this is one way to calculate the amount of time people worked, but this is completely implausible, and so actually we're going to settle for a much higher number. Kenyon estimates 308 days of work in a year, and Oof. Clark estimates 250 to 300, so it's suddenly the disparity between us and the medieval workers has lessened a little bit. Yeah, the window's it? starting to close a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Owned. <laughs> yep. Clearly, she's gone through these papers, and she's seen these different estimates, and either consciously or subconsciously, the author of this book about American leisure and work has gravitated towards the answers to her questions that prove the overarching point she's trying to make in her book. Yeah. She's 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 deliberately sort of cherry To be honest, this is like a myth that I don't really get, because why are people so obsessed with the idea that people in the Middle Ages had it better than us? At first, it seems contradictory with this idea mm. that the medieval world sucks, but then I think you look a little bit closer and you realize that the actual point is like, the medieval world sucked, and people still had it better than you. Yeah, So your exactly. life right now must really suck. Guess what, motherfucker? You're a, you're a worm. <laughs> exactly. that, these medieval puzzles- You are dirt. These medieval peasants are dabbing on you from beyond the grave, drinking their 1% beer, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and eating their pie, their puppet and pie. After she has this bit about how much people work, uh, Juliet Shore, she adds in a little bit of flavor about what life was like in the Middle Ages. Oh, so, yes, here we go. Of the typical medieval working day, she said, it stretched from dawn to dusk. Yep. 16 hours in summer and 8 in winter. But work was intermittent. Called to a halt for breakfast, lunch, the customary afternoon nap, and which dinner. Famously, which famously nobody stops work for lunch. <laughs> yeah. This is really interesting to me as well, because she's kind of making two points. So she's starting uh -huh. off by saying people worked less, and then she's transitioning into saying anyways, like, even if people did have 16-hour workdays, like, their days were way better than yours anyways. And it's adding in this, like, historical flavor. And farming and homesteading are still a thing people do. And the reason why not that many people are homesteaders nowadays is actually because it's really hard work. Yeah. In a sense, she is acknowledging that, like, the nature of labor has changed. And so that's why I think it's a bit of a silly point, in addition to just being flat out wrong. I don't think she's trying to say that life was better in the Middle Ages, but I think once you take away that point, it's like, what is the point? You yeah, know? what are you left with? So I think the question is, if all of these myths are wrong, why do people believe them? What makes them so compelling that you want to smash that share button on that medieval peasant's work less than you meme? I think the common thread here is that people throughout the last 300 years have been taking this quite inconclusive evidence and this quite complicated narrative and choosing the explanation that's convenient to them in that moment. Whether you are a, an English politician in the 19th century saying like, well, it's fine that we don't have full democracy because we're all jolly good chaps and we're all chivalrous. Or a nationalist figure in like 19th century Hungary saying we're the descendants of the mighty Magyars or whatever. It's all for some purpose or somebody, essentially. And the shame about that and the reason why I think it's not just wrong, but also less interesting is because we've kind of stripped the middle ages of what's interesting about it when you actually stop and you go through these myths and you sort of tick them off and look at the reality you find this world that is chaotic and colorful people are wearing terrible clothes and eating eating pies and one of the most popular medieval dishes was chicken with almond milk <gasps> and it was just you would just boil it all together so there was I found a recipe for something called inside out eels. <laughs> How do you turn an eel inside out? You don't want to know. No, I do. I'm withholding that information <laughs> for your own good. 
Oh dear. They have to pass a law saying that you can't wear shoes that are too pointy and long. <laughs> Think of the public safety implications of these sharp, sharp footwear. Um yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful, chaotic world of like of... They put animals on trial. Yes. It's yeah, it's 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 madness. It's abs it's Alice in Wonderland shit from our perspective, basically. Absolutely. Like, yeah, everybody's everybody's going and watching puppet shows and eating pies and, and brewing beer. Playing so much hurdy gurdy. Bagpipe. Bagpipes. It's wonderful. It's it's a kaleidoscopic nightmare of funny stuff, yeah. to be honest. And and the people who live in this time, they are they're people. They are they're horny and they want to write disgusting poetry and they have to do boring admin for their farm. Yeah, like they're, exactly. They're just like us. And in, of course, in other ways, they're not just like us. But we want to flatten, I think, a lot of the things that make the Middle Ages compelling on its own terms into this very linear narrative. Yeah, very simplistic narrative. Yeah. It's... A vested interest in not letting the Middle Ages speak for themselves. Absolutely. I think part of that is also just that, like, language was so different back then, mm. and, like, medieval texts are so difficult for us to read. Even if you read Shakespearean English a century later, that's easier to read. So I think part of it is also that, like, the Middle Ages becomes a very unresistant victim to having the whole narrative recast mm. like this. Yeah, they can't talk back. Yeah, it was an amazing, dynamic, productive world. It wasn't stagnant. It was the time period that gave us all sorts of insane inventions like guns and eyeglasses. Just all of this sort of society. My two favorite things. Guns and eyes. That's all you really need. To be fair, they kind of go together quite well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Speaking as a fucking four-eyed nerd myself. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine... Either having twenty twenty vision and no gun, or like bad vision and a gun. Both of those are, I would say, like you know, suboptimal suboptimal <laughs> outcomes. <laughs> but thanks to the Middle Ages, thanks to the wonder those wonderful people, that is just about going to do us for our whistle stop tour through a grab bag of medieval myths and misconceptions. I do hope you've enjoyed it as always. Um, if you like this episode, please do go to your app of choice and give us a five star rating if you want to hear more about olivia's strange tweets you can follow her at olivia underscore underscore ms and i am uh at aaron a-r-a-n p tappers on twitter and of course there is the official weird medieval guys twitter account which if you aren't subscribed to that i'm honestly not quite sure why you're here <laughs> but i'm happy you are thank you Every root vegetable, actually. Do you have, like, a favorite? Potato, but that's not particularly medieval. That's not medieval. I actually noticed in the previous episode... Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I said potato. You said potato. Fuck off. <laughs> I know. Do you I've understand? Been, I've been thinking about... You don't understand. The I gravity? I was on the train back from recording the first episode when it hit me like a freight train that I had made a joke about them having potatoes in the Middle Ages. Unbelievable. <laughs>